Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. Recently, news headlines are bursting with widespread debates about critical race theory, CRT, and education, books and topics being banned in schools, while statues in various states have been toppled. The Black Lives Matter movement gained a lot of momentum in 2020, and yet, so many of the core conversations or topics remain unaddressed or unchanged within systems and American society. Certain academic circles have begun more work in decoloniality. Recently, CU Boulder has a new land acknowledgement statement, and from a state and local level, there's the recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day in Colorado and the renaming of Settlers Park in Boulder. As these institutional nudges are occurring, it's worth asking more questions. Specifically, this month, we're going to have a conversation asking the questions, what should we decolonize? What is decoloniality and what does it allow or afford? And how does it help us understand the past, present, and future? To answer, we speak with Dr. Nabil Shaibi, a scholar, teacher, and researcher whose work and life center around this topic. Dr. Nabil Shaibi is an associate professor and graduate director of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. In addition, he also serves as the director for the Center of Media, Religion, and Culture at CU Boulder. Nabil specializes in media, religion, and the politics and poetics of Muslim visibility. His work on diasporic media, Islam, and modernity has appeared in a number of scholarly books and research journals, and his work in decoloniality has been taught and published. Dr. Shaibi is currently writing his book, Unmasking Islam, Media, and Fugitive Muslimness, which calls into view the blackmail of the regime of transparency that governs the visibility of Muslims. More recently, Nabil also became the co-editor of the journal Cultural Studies. We're so excited to have this conversation with you today, Nabil. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for finding the time to do it. So I have, I am a, actually um, an avid listener to this podcast and I learn a lot from it. So I hope I can do the same for the listeners of this episode. Absolutely. I'm sure that we will. So <laughs> kind of to start, I would love to, I try to always go back to the beginning and I want to learn more about how you found your passion in diaspora and media specifically. Yeah. I don't know if I would call it a passion necessarily. It was more like a uh, forced reality, so to speak, uh, in the sense that I had um, left uh, my home country, Morocco at the age of 22 Um And that was the first time that I had left uh, my country of birth and um, to come here to the United States in order to pursue um, sort of uh, degrees, MA, and later on a PhD. And um, I just found myself in a situation where you are a little culturally suspended and and it's not necessarily uh, experienced as a loss or um, as a disorientation as much as it was also uh, just an experience of being 
um, you know, uh, I think uh, uprooted, if you want, um, even if it was a willing decision on my part to do it, uh, to, you know, to come to the United States um, as a student, um, it, it still presented a set of challenges and also a set of possibilities, right? And so I was just very curious about how different kinds of diasporic subjects um, really experienced this, um, this notion, this concept of exile, this exilic condition, which uh, varies depending on the experience of uh, the people who go through it. I mean, you could be in exile because you're forced to, because you've been persecuted, because you're, you know, there, there are no, um, uh, you know, chances for you to live a decent life in your place of origin, uh, or you are displaced because of climate change and, and whatnot. So I was just curious about how the media uh, function as an instrument of, either reconnecting with with some kind of a lost past or uh, exploring possibilities of what that experience of loss and displacement really uh, enables um, uh, the person going through this. And, you know, Edward Said has written uh, an entire book, uh, which was his really his memoir on um, sort of called Out of Place, uh, in which he explored quite a bit this notion of um, what does it mean to be um, out of uh, out of place, right? Sort of out of of kind of sync with um, the environment in which you live, because you still have this uh, attachment to a, you know a place that that you have left behind or that you were forced to leave behind. And he talks there a lot about what exile has not just uh, made him miss or lose, but also what it has enabled him to gain. Um, and to learn from, and how that that state of out of places placedness um, could be so empowering and enabling as well, right? Um, and so, so uh, yeah, all of these things were very much on my mind, um, and 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 sort of the media component also uh, was w- was absolutely instrumental in the way in which I approached uh, initially this sort of the study of diaspora and, and media. Yeah, and I I really love that you've already highlighted a lot of, you know, scholars who have inspired you in some way. And I know that we'll probably have many more to come in in the next parts of the conversation. But I did want to, you know, kind of shift into more maybe the work that you're doing at the moment, which definitely Mm -hmm. centers a lot around decoloniality and, you know, a lot of the current issues that we're seeing in headlines, like the debates about critical race theory and those words kind of emerging, like decoloniality kind of entering more conversations. And so I was wondering if we could kind of also start by having, a, you know, not necessarily a, a definition per se, but kind of just diving more deeply into the question of what is decoloniality and what does it help us understand about the past, maybe the present and the future? Yeah, so so there, there, there isn't really... Um... Uh, a definitive, uh, I would say, definition of decoloniality. But there are certain principles, I think, that are very characteristic of what this movement, um, both of thought, but also of practice, um, is about. Um, And I would say, you know, my answer to your first question about diaspora is really what led me to decoloniality, the sense that there isn't really a rupture or a break. And and this, this sense of putting yourself at odds with the, with the familiar, 
right? Uh, yeah. With the the things that we have become so habituated with, um, and and how to break free from certain ways of seeing the world. And I always say that for me, decoloniality, without really trying to complicate things too much, is about unlearning the dominant ways in which we have been forced and socialized to see, to feel, to hear, and to read the world uh, and one another. Um, it's about challenging uh, the arrogance and the hubris of universalist thinking um, and, and, and the physical and epistemic violence that comes with that posture in the world. Coloniality, which is uh, really a, uh, an ongoing matrix of power that we still live with and of power and control that we have inherited and we still live with it, came to us or to some of us with a lot of arrogance and a lot of certainty. So decoloniality is about dethroning uh, first in ourselves, in our own minds, that universalist certainty. Uh, this idea that there is only one teleology about the world. Um, there are all these stages and you have to follow them in order to emancipate yourself. And that is universal um, for everyone. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what religion you have. It doesn't matter uh, any of the specificities about who you are. There is this, just this common course and it has been charted by someone and therefore you have to uh, um, you know, to follow that authority and in order to gain that, you know, that emancipation and self-actualization. And, and, and sort of decoloniality, what it does is that it, 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 it seeks to liberate us from that alienation, from that, um, this notion that there are people who have arrived and then there are people who have, who are waiting in the waiting room of history as Deepesh Chakrabarti, a post-colonial historian actually uh, talks about. You know, I'm I'm also interested uh, not only in decoloniality as a theoretical, you know, kind of exercise because it should not be limited to that. Uh, it is also a a call to action. It is a a call to a certain kind of practice um, about how we understand the world and how we can act in the world. Uh, we have these important cautionary tales about not, you know coming up with some kind of an equivalence to all uh, experiences and 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 you know and and making making it look like all forms of oppression are the same right an important text is uh, decolonization is not a metaphor which reminds us that we should not necessarily think that uh, the decoloniality or decolonization should be divorced from this need to re restitute land to the indigenous, because that that is at the core of this um, of this grievance of this of this ask, and therefore we have to honor the fact that decoloniality comes from a particular kind of struggle and cannot we can't just talk about how to decolonize your diet and how to decolonize your yoga practice. And, you know, sometimes we, we get so much embroiled in these kinds of, I wouldn't call them necessarily petty discourses, but they are, they, they are certainly divorced from the struggle. And we have to always bring it back to the significance um, and the historical, um, I think, primacy of um, sort of the, the, the event uh, as well as the, you know, the, the system that, that is colonization. 
Um, and so in this particular case, settler colonialism comes from a particular kind of, of struggle. But I would also say that uh, decoloniality is about acting at the level of, of the, the epistemological, right? Sort of the, the, the kind of epistemes that, that, that are lodged in our heads and as this is the way in which you can read the world, right? Fred Moten uh, has a wonderful uh, way of describing this. He doesn't necessarily talk about decoloniality, but he kind of gestures to it in his in his work. And uh, he says that Kant, uh, when he theorizes, he doesn't just theorize, he actually legislates and he makes rules in the world. And I certainly feel um, as a student um, coming into this country uh, from, you know, from, uh, from the global South, I felt like when I read Western theory, Western social theory and critical theory, I felt like someone was holding um, a stick and telling me, uh, this is the only way for you to, to be in the world, right? And if you want to call yourself a modern subject, uh, an emancipated uh, subject, these are the texts that you have to read. These are the things that you have to abide by. These are the principle. These are the metaphors that you have to live with. And I always found that that was a very, you know, violent way of imposing a certain kind of semantic order, a certain kind of uh, epistemic, um, you know, uh, regime through which we we understand the world. And, uh, you know, and, and I think what's going on, you know, here is, um, you know, even I think initially you asked the question about critical race theory and, what what has been going on, particularly in in this country, but also I would say in you know elsewhere, I think much of it is is about a, a certain kind of fear and 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 paranoia coming from people who are going to lose that privilege of legislation, of that that privilege, that power of legislating the world. Right? There's a lot of delirium and I would say uh, neurosis, <laughs> almost. In this anti-critical race theory uh, type of, I don't know if I want to call it movement, but it's certainly a sentiment, and and people act on that sentiment, and it's pretty scary when they do because this fear is really about losing something that is um, very powerful. It's and it's also about preserving a certain kind of order. You know, it's it's making noise so that the terms of that order are not breached. So essentially, what this is about is 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 also a refusal to look into the past and say, okay, the, you know, the, we need to look into the past in order to figure out, you know, why is it that we're still living with um, some contradictions and some uh, real um, examples of of oppression, right? It's it's a refusal to look into the past because the past is going to uh, dredge up a lot of a lot of misery, a lot of glaring contradictions and violations, right? So, so it's a refusal also to acknowledge that racism is about, you know, about structural and systemic violations. Uh, it's not individual, right? These are not individual experiences that kind of require individual solutions. So we have to dig into the past. This is how I think about, you know, sort of critical race theory, the sort of this movement that wants us to suppress what actually gets studies under the ages of critical race theory is that, yeah, don't just forget the past. Even even when you are so much in you know engulfed by it, I just find that to be um, 
very problematic uh, on so many levels. So, so in a nutshell, this is a long definition, obviously, of decoloniality. Um, but you asked for it, uh, and and um, just to say that decoloniality is something that that is not just some abstract concept that 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 hovers at the level of ideas, but it actually finds also a real manifestation. Um, in the quotidian and the everyday. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Nabil Shaibi about decoloniality. I really think that's important that you've highlighted too, because I feel like when we see these types of words like decoloniality or colonization or, you know, things, it's like, it maybe signals like, oh, this is something that has happened in the past and oh, you know, thinkers are thinking about it or like, we'll let the academics, you know, do the work on this. But like everyday life is impacted by it. And there's ways in which we can, you know, take and and do better and change and acknowledge now to, you know, hopefully produce a better future, um, which I think is another beautiful aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, um, when I say it is also a practice or a praxis, right? Uh, very much at the heart of it is, exactly that march towards change, radical change, that is, right? Whether it is in the classroom, in the way we study things, in the way we remember things, or it's in the streets when protesters are saying, we don't want these statues in our streets, we don't want them in our universities, whether it's in South Africa or in, you know, in Bristol or here in the US, people are rising up against these inequalities because these inequalities also impact not only, you know, sort of their way of thinking about the world, but their way of living in the world, right? Sort of these reminders that these metaphors um, that, you know, and I, and I do take these statues and, you know, these reminders to be also metaphors, to be, again, semiotic orders and semantic orders uh, through which we understand the world. I do take them as a, um, you know, as deadly metaphors, right? So they have proven over and over again that they are deadly. And the fact that we want people to constantly forget about how deadly they are or they can be um, is is a sort of violence, right? Gloria Enzaldúa, the, you know, the Chicana feminist, used to say that yesterday pinches like an outgrown shoe, that the past is never past. And we still feel it today. And critical race theory is a way to make sure that the shoemakers in the world are multiple. They are they are plural, so that 
the people who have been making the shoes uh, that we wear <laughs> and the metaphors that we live by should no longer be making those shoes. Or if they want to still be in the shoemaking business, they need to change the way in which they conceive of what kind of shoe fits the world. Because the shoe that, that they have made for us for centuries um, uh, doesn't fit anymore. It cannot fit anymore. And this is why people are rising up and, and, and because of economic inequality, because of racism, because of sexism and misogyny in many parts of the world, right? Um, the reason being, we do not want the same shoemakers for this world, right? To, to continue with that metaphor, because I think people want to make sure that there is liberation, right? At the end of it all. And they feel like under these orders, uh, the semantic and semiotic and, and, and also these economic orders that still govern the world, there is no liberation. Uh, so we could either listen to these people or we can ignore them. But if you ignore them, there are consequences. And yes. this, is, this is what's happening in the world. And, and people are constantly asking also questions about how to, how to, how to take this decolonial project you know, into applicable uh, recipes so that we are not just thinking about it sort of theoretically and conceptually, right? The Zapatista mm -hmm. said, uh, we walk while we ask questions. And so the decolonial is really joining sort of the deep theoretical reflection, deep conceptual reflection with the act of doing things. Divorcing one from the other is not really doing justice to the decolonial spirit uh, of this critique. Yeah, and I, I think that this also kind of inspires me to think too about when you're saying like how we're kind of taking you know, decolonial work and decolonial thought and thinkers and how we're applying them, right, as a, as a practice. And, you know, it, it inspired me to think about, you know, your recent, you know, publication that came out in, in January that was titled My Father's Handwriting. Mm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about it, obviously, because it, it gives a very compelling discussion of, you know, your father, your family, your own mm -hmm. writing um, and how it's been influenced. And and I'm wondering too, like, what did this writing allow you to do? Um, and, you know, how did you realize that you wanted to publish something that was so powerful and vulnerable, but perhaps, you know, personal, mm -hmm. right? And so how did you kind of grapple with all of those things? Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, th this is a, a kind of, uh, that kind of writing is in a way, uh, a form of insurrection for me <laughs> against uh, sort of these academic uh, modalities that force us to write only in one form and carry only one sort of objective voice as if we were some kind of unique specimen in the world, uh, that we are not of the world, <laughs> that we are above the world. We are perched on some kind of hill that we can look at the world from above and, and pontificate about it. Um, so for me, the essay form is a way to to refuse that 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 idea that you can um, that you that you are not of the world, right? Or that you are only as an academic, as a scholar, your responsibility is only to comment um, on the world from a distance, right? Um, so the personal um, is very much part of how I see my work. And sometimes, sometimes the my work uh, comes out in in the form of a journal article, and and I certainly su 
support that and will continue to support that kind of modality. We need it uh, for our own uh, reflection, for our own growth as intellectuals, or it comes as a uh, an academic book. Uh, it comes in the, the conference paper. But very often also I feel, I feel the need and the urge to also write in that essay form. So I've been doing that for quite a few years, but this is the first time that I actually opened up about something very personal and very intimate, which was the memory of my father uh, who died when I was, you know, I had just turned 19. Um, but my father was, you know, whose body was ravaged by by uh, disease, but 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 also had this beautiful capacity to 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 resist and persist and live. Uh, it, it was something that I really wanted to to write about um, in the sense that in the midst of adversity, in the midst of, you know, a tragic um uh, condition as uh, kind of a disease that 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 really just uh, takes its toll on on the body. My father was always able to find some kind of solace and some kind of reason to to go on. But I wanted to write about him uh, by remembering something that I thought always was so um, unique about him, which is sort of this um, th- this uh, desire to write. Um, and so the story that I, that I tell in, in that essay is the story of me not being able to find, uh, the, all of these notebooks that my father used to write in. And all I remember is just this very careful ritual that he had with writing, uh, with this ink pen and the care with which he, he wrote, right? But it ended up being more uh, than that, right? It ended up being also kind of a, a way to invoke a certain peacefulness about my father's writing that I couldn't find or that I still cannot find today. Because I just felt like as someone who comes from the background that I have, someone who is, you know, a Muslim um, someone who is Arab, someone who, you know, has been in this country for quite some time, but still has maintained a certain attachment to that background, I just felt always like I was, uh, particularly after 9-11, that I was incited to write um, as opposed to invited. I was incited to write in order to defend, in order to explain, in order to make the case, in order to reveal who I was all the time. I just felt pointed at. I felt hailed in a particular way, right? Um, You know, it's almost like that that Althusserian, you know, um, hailing interpolation by the police of the state hailing you as you over there, right? Sort of you being hailed as the subject of the state. For me, it was more like you, the Muslim over there, right? You you feel it at the airport. You feel it in uh, group settings. You feel it when a journalist asks you the question or so, are you going to condemn this violent act that was perpetrated by a Muslim somewhere, you feel interpolated constantly as that subject or object of permanent suspicion that you are, you know, you, you, you are constantly invoked in that register. Um, and, and so for me, there was always this conflictual relationship with writing, right? So, so I, I was just remind, remembering calmness and the serenity of my father's writing and i and i don't know maybe maybe he was not serene when he was writing and certainly the fact that from just the really just the symptoms of this disease he was trying to figure out maybe how to think about writing as a way to alleviate maybe the pain of of the everyday 
and he had he he wrote in 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 calligraphy and so his his writing was so beautiful uh both in arabic and in french and so i was just imagining this way of thinking about also you know the fact that he went through <clears throat> colonial schooling under the french he went to a quranic school where uh, he was hit on the head if he did not remember the Quranic, uh, you know, the, the right proper recitation of the Quranic, uh, you know, surat and whatnot. And I just thought that that writing for him maybe uh, gave him some kind of freedom from both of those uh, restrained and restricting types of, of schooling that maybe did not allow him to emancipate himself the way he wanted. So, so yeah, so it, it just gave me a way to to think about what I feel about my own writing. And, and now I just, you know, it, it's been like this for now quite some time where I, I feel really liberated away from this uh, compulsion to, uh, to write for someone and particularly that, that Western interlocutor in my head. I just feel, feel like I have to ditch that interlocutor and I have, and it feels, it feels pretty good. I, I can imagine and I think that the work that you have been, you know, kind of toiling over and like the the conversations you've been having and like all of those things are kind of reflective of that um, in my mind. So I'm I'm already seeing I'm like, I'm really glad that you're feeling this and that you're doing these things because I I think it's really incredible what you've what you've been able to kind of you know, talk about and think about and you know, on that subject kind of I I think about teaching, right? And mm -hmm. I think about teaching as this way, you know, when we're thinking about decoloniality and like how we can practice, right? Like teaching is this really beautiful space of learning. And, you know, I know that you just finished teaching a, a graduate seminar actually about decolonizing mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you could, you know, spend a little bit of time talking about what kind of emerged from this class and what were some of the things that, you know, everyone was kind of thinking about talking through and, you know, I, how that kind of relates to this overall project of of decoloniality? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is uh, an extension of all these reflections that I've been having uh, with myself, but also with some other colleagues and friends about the decolonial and about the sort of how the decolonial, decolonial could also be um, an instrument to bring into the classroom, right? And and not just in terms of the readings and in terms of the the syllabus that you put together, but also in terms of how you decide to overhaul even the assignments and 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 maybe even the the way in which you interact with your students in a seminar room and whatnot. And so this is an extension of that reflection to the realm of teaching and pedagogy. And I've been wanting to teach this uh, for quite some time, and it was um, it was just a, a dream come true, really, to be able to do that, but but also to be able to act on my own, you know, not only my field, media studies, but also to act generally on sort of the I would say uh, the realm of, of thinking um, about the world and of how we conceive of uh, sort of the production of knowledge, right? So, so it was in a way a kind of intervention, really. Having a few students who were willing also to uh, tag along quite, uh, you know, I think passionately and, and also readily helped me helped free me from sort of the feeling like I was doing something that was out of the ordinary. Like I just felt like there were these, these 
kind of allies, right? Conspirators, so to speak, in my intervention uh, that welcomed this look at, you know, the politics of the production of knowledge. Where does knowledge come from? Who, who should we read? Where do these authors have to come from? And, and how conscious are we uh, when we develop a syllabus of the people that, that we assign, the, the text that we assign, and who are those people? What do they contribute to the conversation, right? And so, you know, I've been doing this for a, a few years in terms of my syllabi, which is to, at the end of my syllabus, I just have kind of a statistical uh, table that gives the n- number of men versus the number of women, uh, the number of authors from, you know, West-based uh, universities and and those that are not uh, based in the West, but mostly in the global South. You know, I also do this by race and 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 whatnot. And 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 I'm not saying that this is uh, the extent to which you can decolonize, uh, you know, your work or or a syllabus. But I'm just saying this is a really good starting point to force yourself to think about when you you think in your syllabus that you have exhausted the list of authors who have written about a particular thing, right? Uh, whether it's surveillance, whether it is, you know, I'm, I'm just using here some themes just to give you an example, uh, or a sort of, um, you know, questions of governance or, um, you know, uh, feminist critique or queer critique and whatnot. When you feel like you have exhausted that list, basically what I'm doing is I'm forcing myself to say, look again, and try to see, are you missing on something? Are you depriving your students from a different perspective? Um, and so this requires quite a bit of discipline, right? Uh, but it also requires someone also who doesn't speak just one language. And I, and this is an unfortunate thing, right, really. It's just that, obviously, we talk about you know what I was saying earlier about the semantic orders and the and the visual and the semiotic orders. Um, there is something about obviously the linguistic orders here of academia is that particularly in corners here where we obviously are always going to privilege something that's written in English and 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 that's a major deficiency. I think any decolonial initiative should start inviting your students to learn another language, at least one other language, because uh, the world cannot be felt and heard and experienced only in one language, particularly when that one language has been, you know, responsible for so many things that, unfortunately, very, very problematic uh, in terms of violence, in terms of, you know, imperialism, and in terms also of an epistemic violence, right? Franz Fanon used to say that learning a language is not just about learning its grammar and learning its, um, you know, its syntax and its, its vocabulary. It is about carrying the weight of a civilization. And so when we speak only one language, we are carrying really the weight of only one civilization. And if that language is not yours, and I speak here as someone who speaks and writes in two languages that are actually not my own, and that this comes with quite a bit of, you know, of frustration as well as I think pleasure and possibility, but it also comes from frustration because 
there is this other language that I grew up speaking, which is Arabic, which I read and write in, but not as much as I do in in English and, and French. So, so yeah, so the decolonial class was really to challenge all of these orders, to challenge these these habituations that we have about what constitutes, you know, a, a curriculum, what constitutes a canon of readings. And, and what we did was to act on this by inviting the students to think about how would they decolonize a syllabus uh, based on the work that they were interested in doing, right? And really just to keep them free reign on, on imagining what that could be, right? I'm, I'm very much interested in taking risks, right? Taking risks in terms of not just the text and the authors, but also in terms of the formats of what you use as viable you know, objects of study. So it could be film, it could be art, it could be, you know, uh, performances, it could be various things. And also sites where you could take your students and, and whatnot. And, 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 and just to be deliberate about taking that risk, right? And, and I think what, what came out of it is, is just so beautifully uh, empowering. Uh, just every, every single one of uh, the students that took this class really took this not only seriously, but took it as an opportunity really just to intervene also in their own work and say, this is, this liberates me to, to think differently and to refuse some of these conventions that, that have been so constraining as to what constitutes class, what constitutes a course, what constitutes a conversation. The texts that is comes from, say, an, you know, Africa or that comes from South America or that comes from non-Western countries is no longer the text that just gets mentioned at the end of a, a, a syllabus in, in that week where you say, let's look at some alternative ways of seeing the world, right? Sort of, I, I always saw, uh, which is exactly why I don't like the word international. This is why I don't like the world um, transnational, because I always feel like what it means is just this alternative. Let's, let's find ways to make room. This is in the best case scenario. Let's make room for the alternative. And once we have heard the alternative, we could just go back to, you know, what we are used to, but we have heard the alternative viewpoint, the alternative talk. So for me, decoloniality is not about some kind of cultural fundamentalism to say, okay, I want to step away from the West in order to find refuge in the non-West. Absolutely not. I think that that's really the wrong interpretation of a decolonial critique. A decolonial critique is about, you know, I I tell my students, um, the Ghanaian revolutionary and president, the first president of independent Ghana, Nkrumah, right, Kwame Nkrumah, used to say, we face neither east nor west west we face only forward right and i think that that's the spirit of the decolonial is to look at everything to have a certain kind of a pluriverse not a universal you know um kind of compulsion to follow one province of the world but to multiply the provinces in order to be able to say well now that i have access to all of this pluriverse, I feel like, you know, most, if not all are represented and therefore we can move forward. Uh, that's the, that's, that was the spirit of that class. And I have to say that I learned as much from, from it, I think maybe even more than the students uh, did from me. 
You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Nabil Shaibi about decoloniality. Yeah, and I, I can say as, you know, someone who was challenged by this class, that it was it was very much that experience for myself. It was really, it was really powerful to have the conversations and to think and to actually question like, how do I know what I know? And mm-hmm. how did that, you know, come to me, right? And how can I impart something different or maybe even better than what was given to me? And how do I kind of go beyond, you know, what just appears on the surface, which oftentimes is easily, you know, graspable. It's, you know, it's the the Western canon, right? It's like, here's these Western scholars, like you've grown up in this and like you've read these already maybe in grad school and now I can just teach them, right? And instead it's like stopping that process and being like, but wait, isn't there more, right? Like what else is there? And in my mind, it was, you know, just really, like you were saying earlier, liberating. It was liberating for me, you know, as someone who could, how can I, you know, even think about data differently or technology differently? Because there's so many fantastic thinkers in this world who are doing this work and haven't been read perhaps or haven't right. been considered and i think that's a, a travesty truly to to producing knowledge or to even teaching you know at, at this level so i'm really mm. glad that you taught the class finally <laughs> yeah well i was very happy that you you took the class and that you uh really reflected on the the utility of the class in in this way you know there, there are two things uh that I, I i still think about uh constantly and that that is really also a reflection of my own of my own work is that i i keep vacillating between these two kind of imperatives right one is I, I always tell my students, like, the, the point behind the decolonial approach is not to stop reading uh, some of these dominant and hegemonic, you know, kind of curricula, but it's to cast a different eye on them, right? So that because they have shaped the world in which we live and we cannot just ignore them and say there's no value in them and we cannot ignore them by saying, okay, uh, because they happen to be the dominant uh, framework that you know that that continue to govern the world. Therefore, we need to jettison them in order to make uh, room for something else. I think um, you know I'm I'm reminded by uh, a poet, Dion Brand, who says something really powerful here. She says, "Plato was a slaveholder, and I cannot go past that." She says, "I am barbarian, and that's the way it is." Right. Sort of that's how it started. Right. Sort of at the at the very root of this sort of kind of thinking, there is something fundamentally flawed. And the point for her is not to stop reading Plato, is not to stop dealing with Plato or however many other authors who have dealt with Plato and continued in the footsteps of that. Right. And, you know, uh, Kant also was someone who was notorious uh, for his sort of classification of races, right? Um, and we don't 
focus on that when we talk about him, right? And and so there are authors who have raised these questions, right? And and said we have to deal with that canon and ask different questions of the canon in order for us to be able to converse with the world. Otherwise, you're just speaking in an idiom that is only yours, um, and you're alienating yourself from the people who probably are not willing to do exactly the things that you're doing and want to stay only within that that canon. So you have to be able to open that, that dialogue. You know, Deepesh Chakrabarty talks about provincializing, you know, Europe and European thought. Uh, I think that that's, in a way, um, kind of the... The, the, the initiative. But the other side of this, the other imperative that I, you know, that I'm dealing with is when do we decide that we have to move on from just that talking back? When is your writing and your thinking not just a reactive force to what has been already written? And when does it have to uh, engage in something else? This is where I find the work of a lot of scholars in black study, black radical study, you know, Saidiya Hartman, Fred Moten, Sylvia Winter, you know, many, many, you know, uh, Christina Sharp, many, many scholars who talk about this notion of there is the Christina Sharp's idea of in the wake, that we live in the wake of something, but we also produce something else and sort of this notion of fugitivity, how to be a fugitive in the world. Of, of not only of thinking, but also of, of, of living in the world. And a true fugitive is one who is not constantly blocked in that uh, frame of writing back, uh, because we cannot just reiterate the stories. We cannot just, you know, give certain kinds of authors and texts that same importance as the ultimate referent, the ultimate reference point. We have to move on and create something else, right? So for me, there's always this balance of sort of trying to do both things at the same time, which is why I'm writing a book about what I call fugitive Muslimness. It's just to acknowledge that Muslims do not live only, you know, as as an answer to the questions that the West has of them. So so your interaction with a Muslim cannot be reduced just to show me who you are, reveal yourself to me so that I could be reassured that you are safe, that you're not going to blow yourself up, and uh, that you do not constitute this, this, um, you know, this object of harm to me. These are very reductive and violent questions uh, when we reduce the Muslim only to that register. And, and Muslims cannot operate only from that vantage point. They have to be able to also write and think about the world. And they have, except that we don't see that aspect of them, right? So for me, there is a sense of fugitivity of Muslimness away from those registers away from those frameworks of representation that send us thinking about Muslims in a in a different way. And um, I find so much critical purchase in this notion of fugitivity, right? That, that the terms, for example, of blackness should not be understood and interpreted strictly from the experience of freedom from slavery, that, that black ideas of freedom should not be tied just to the experience of enslavement and enclosure. And that liberates people to think about the experience of blackness differently, right? That blackness does not exist only in relation to whiteness, right? That there is an ontological essence 
of what blackness is, or or, or maybe not essence, but there is an ontological uh, plurality of blackness that can be captured and can and and is lived already, and it cannot be reduced to just how white people want to understand blackness. It's not it's not about white fragility. It's about it's about white for me. It's about white expectations of a certain kind of blackness or black experience that actually satisfies only their understanding of, you know, of that experience vis-a-vis their own. And, you know, we have lots of people who've written about this, you know, Fanon, you know, says, I was born to give, I was born to, you know, to, to be in this world and to contribute to this world, yet you assigned to me the humility of the cripple. You crippled me, you excised me, you... You made me look like I exist in this world only to answer your questions, only to um, for you to be able to define yourself against me. That's fugitivity. And that's, that's really the core of a decolonial approach to life in general, uh, but also to the way we, we think uh, about the world and our place in it. And that was that was something that I really have kept, you know, with me after you know taking this class and like listening to you talk and and reading, you know, various scholars and perspectives. And it's this idea of like how categorizing people and we're we're you know automatically having assumptions, judgments, like all of those even heuristics that we might not even be aware of, right? That that definitely govern so much of of the everyday and interaction and have these very, very problematic, you know, origins and how even, you know, our need to categorize at all comes from this place of coloniality and and how that has impacted and shaped knowledge production, science, you know, every possible thing that that we have we've created, you know, since it's it's just very important i think that yeah. we have highlighted this here and and we talk about it and we think about it and we realize like this is what it is and we listen right like you were saying you know we can't ignore people who are saying like this is what's going on you know like it's it's very problematic to do that and so and dangerous and deadly um and there yeah. are massive consequences absolutely and you're right to uh to to describe it that way because um also something that i find um wanting in our public discourse about this is cuz i'm ultimately also interested in um the way in which we reach different publics with with our uh work with our writing so it cannot be just an internal conversation it has it cannot also be just at the level of the classroom or the conference room it has to be also in public is that when you know, th- this whole, this noise around critical race theory, right? Sort of by making it look like it is a theory, by making it look like, by, by making it appear like it is something that is abstract or maybe even, um, you know, obscure, you, you are basically uh, sort of trying to highlight its, you know, its non-relevance to, to the world. When critical race theory is actually very much about sort of breaking it down for everyone so that we understand again the experience of structural racism and 
of of also of structural uh, sexism, you know, in terms of feminist criticism does, um, you know, and the Me Too movement, you know, sort of, you know, Me Too movement before for this kind of consciousness around um, sexism and how it penetrates our structures, and then uh, Black Lives Matter in terms of how racism can be structural, how racism is in our prison, how racism is in our hospitals, our schools, our universities, and whatnot. I think. We need to figure out a way to to simplify uh, our terms and to stop thinking about things in terms of this theory does this and this theory does that, right? We need a translator sort of or translation agents. And this is not, I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about, you know, movement. I'm talking about, um, you know, ideas that find uh, their uh, significance also in the street, right? And we have, our history is filled with examples of this, right? Black studies was not created in, you know, just in, you know, some sort of a conference room. It was actually created in the streets. It was created in the campuses. The same thing with feminism, right? And so I I think that that's the spirit. The spirit is always to leave that door open between sort of the, the realm of ideas and thinking and study and the world where study actually is already happening, as Fred Moten tells us, right? Study is not something that happens only at the university or in the classroom. Study is already happening. Uh, the Zapatistas are very, you know, very instructive in that in that concern. You know, we 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 don't only walk. We we walk and we ask questions, and and those questions become really the the essence of what we do and how we think uh, about protests and about our grievances and about asking our um, politicians to be more accountable and and whatnot so I'm I'm a big uh, proponent of making sure that we never lose sight of the relationship between the the places that we originally or sometimes traditionally think of as the places of thinking and those other places that we originally and traditionally think of just as the as the place of action i think those dichotomies are artificial and we need to uh, be able to think of them again in the words of fred moten as steady when you enter steady steady has already been happening you just didn't notice it right uh, so we need to locate all those sites of study in order to find uh, maybe sort of applications for how we can actually change uh, the worlds. And, and, and this means that we change also our modalities of assembly, how we get together. So, and with whom we get together, right? Another important aspect of, of the sort of the decolonial approach to things. Again, I'm, I'm deeply moved by all of that because I think that it's wonderful to actually remind ourselves all the time that, you know, we are constantly learning. We're constantly studying. We're constantly asking questions about the everyday. And I think that's super powerful because we can't lose sight of that. Um, and it might seem so like, oh, well, it's just mundane. I'm just doing my, you know, going to my job and I'm coming home and, you know, I'm with my family or whatever. But there's so much power and possibility within the everyday itself. And that's what ex- inspires me when I think about the future. And And I know to close kind of the conversation, I, I wondered, is there anything particularly um, inspiring or hopeful about the future that, that you're thinking about right now or that you hope to see? Yeah, I, I think it's not anything that I am kind of responsible for. It's like what's actually is happening already. 
amongst my students, for example. Um, this awareness that things have to change, that the status quo cannot continue, right? Sort of this idea that the shoe doesn't fit anymore, right? And so I, I just feel like it's almost like the soul of, of um, Gloria Enzaldúa speaks to me, right? Sort of when she said, uh, it's, it's time to change course, right? Sort of to go elsewhere, right? To, to veer from the directions that we have been going in, to change the orientation, right? Um, I just feel that um, in my students uh, because they demand from us a different kind of curriculum, a different kind of approach to life. They ask that question, what can we do now? I am very uh, both, uh, I think, energized by that, but also humbled by it because it keeps me, you know, it, it keeps it keeps my my feet uh, to the fire, right? Because I have to keep thinking about how how can this work then find a different application in the world, um, not on the terms of the relevance of the neoliberal system and order of things, right? Sort of, does your theorizing thinking uh, live up to the relevance of the market? Not, not, not that. It's mostly, can we marshal everything that we do and harness the power of theorizing and thinking and studying for the realization? of equality for all can we and can can we enlist our students also in that um in in that campaign as opposed to making sure that they become just good professional citizens of the university or of the academy i am really very empowered by that and i want my students to constantly uh put put me really um on, on notice almost under pressure I want to be put on notice every time, right? And so, and I, I find that coming mostly from our students these days. Yeah, that, that gives me a lot of hope too. And I, I look around and, you know, things are in shambles a lot of the time, but, but I think there's also a lot of really beautiful things that are happening and a lot of people doing a lot of work all the time, every single day. Um, and even the students just by demanding more, you know, it's all part of this process. And I think, again, I, I really do feel like there, there is some hopeful hopefulness in all of it. Can I just say one more thing? It's feelings of um, despair that we all experience in, in, you know, throughout the pandemic, but also obviously that our, um, our role as scholars and as academics is not just to diagnose the disease. And, and or at least be part of the solution because we cannot find the solutions alone. But providing that language of possibility, providing that vocabulary that we actually can do things together collectively. I love that so much. The language of possibility. <laughs> I think that that's such a beautiful way to kind of wrap up the conversation. Well, thank, thank you, you so Bailey. much, Nabil. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Nabil Shaibi. If you'd like to find out more about his work, you can visit the Center for Media, Religion, and Culture at www.colorado.edu slash cmrc slash. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. 
You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.